So then you are no longer foreigners or and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, because you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a cornerstone. In him, the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Let's just open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, just thank you so much for your word. Thank you. Thank you that, that we find life, that we find truth in your word, Lord, and I pray that today that you would you would really speak through Tom, Lord, that you would uh, convey the things that you would have him say, Lord, that we would look to our own hearts um, and have the Holy Spirit convict us of areas that we need to uh, look at. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you just bless this meeting today. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'll tell you guys that my uh, lately I'm I'm working on trying to limit the messages to 40 minutes, but for me that's just about like asking for a brain transplant. In any case, uh, today we're probably going to go a little bit over that, but since I have 14 pages in my outtakes, it's not for lack of trying. We will pick up our study of 1 Peter next week, Lord willing. This morning we're going to consider... God's answer to a couple of very problematic issues impacting the church, especially in America, but pretty much all over the Western world. Uh, you can uh, you can kind of blame Phil Borat for this message. He's he's here somewhere, but a comment that he made uh, to me a week and a half ago when we were doing our sermon discussion got me got my gears turning, and they've been turning ever since. He said. He said, uh, personal study of the Bible is not the only outworking of a pure longing for the milk, uh, of a fervent longing for the pure milk of God's Word. And you know, you hear some things and they have a ring of truth. That had a resounding clang of truth. Um, and it has kind of prompted me to really think, to, to go back to the Scriptures and to look at at what it means to really long for the Word, and what it means to long for God's people. We're going to look at some blueprints this morning, God's blueprints for a house that He's building. They're not complicated. They're very simple. I'm talking, of course, about God's house, the dwelling place that He is building for Himself. That house that Paul calls a holy temple in the Lord, is the church. Now, I'm aware, of course, that the church is not made up of physical buildings. It's made up of people. But in Ephesians 2 and in 1 Peter 2 and other passages of Scripture, God speaks of the dwelling place that He is building using a word picture, a metaphor, if you will, of a physical building. And that metaphor shows us some very important things about his design for his household, for his church. It shows us how it's put together. It is a household wonderfully engineered, designed to weather the most violent storms, the most devastating earthquakes, and to stand against every attack from every enemy. Enemy. 
my essential question this morning will be this. Are we on board with God's design for His household? Or are we trying to replace it with our own design? Now, I'm not suggesting we would ever succeed in replacing His design. God's not going to let that happen. But we need to figure out if we're good with God's design. Or are we trying to chisel away at at what He has been building so we can remake it on our own terms? In biblical times, the foundation of a building was created out of large stones rather than poured slabs of concrete. The very first stone that was laid was the cornerstone. It was by far the biggest stone in the whole building, and it was the anchor of the entire structure. It was, in effect, the foundation of the foundation. The cornerstone of God's church, of God's household, is Christ. This was declared through the Old Testament prophets long before the church existed. When we resume our study next week of 1 Peter, we'll see Peter cite three of those Old Testament passages that talk about Christ as the cornerstone. The cornerstone is Christ. The foundation of God's household is that which Paul refers to as the foundation of the apostles and prophets in Ephesians 2.20. That foundation is God's Word, God's revelation given through those apostles and prophets by the Holy Spirit. Through them, God has revealed His design for the construction of His household. And according to that design, the bricks out of which He is building the rest of His house include both Jews and Gentiles as the true redeemed people of God. The New Testament apostles and prophets were God's instruments, His vessels through whom He finished out the incomplete, not-so-clear revelation which he'd already given through the Old Testament prophets. In the Old Testament, they had the rough sketch of God's design for his dwelling place, but even without fully understanding what they were writing about, they told us a whole lot about God's design. Then, the cornerstone came from heaven to earth in person. And the Holy Spirit handed the whole set of blueprints over to the New Testament apostles and prophets. No more mystery. We have met the cornerstone. The foundation has been fully laid and is firmly anchored to that cornerstone. And God is faithfully constructing His house. Brick by brick. We who have been redeemed and named the children of God from among both Jews and Gentiles are those bricks. We're grounded upon the foundation, which is His Word. Through the foundation, we are anchored to Christ, the cornerstone of the anchor of the whole construction project. In Ephesians 4, Paul mentions four spiritual gifts. They're not the only gifts. They're four specific gifts that God gave to His church to equip and to build up every believer so that we would all grow up in maturity together in Christ. 
And it is no coincidence that the four gifts in that passage all have to do with the Word of God. Those gifts are apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. The arrangement of the wording in the passage leads me to believe that pastor-teacher is one gift as it's being referenced there. The apostles and prophets were God's instruments to deliver His Word. It was through them that God laid the foundation of the Scriptures. Evangelists are God's instruments to preach His Word to the lost, gathering in more bricks for God to use to build His house. And pastor-teachers are God's instruments to proclaim and teach His Word to those bricks who have been added so they will all be firmly glued, securely mortared to the foundation and to each other. Maturity in Christ, conformity to Christ, are all about your and every other believer's connection to the foundation and through the foundation to the cornerstone. Everything about God's household ties back to the cornerstone. We'll talk a lot about that at the end. Now I'm going to stretch this metaphor a little bit. And I'll ask you to bear with me. Because the point toward which I'm heading is a biblically sound point, as you will see. But what I'm going to say about the metaphor is just intended to help give you a picture that that helps you grasp that point and hang on to it. Think of the bottom layer of bricks as those whom God has gifted to reveal and proclaim and preach and teach His Word. They're very closely connected to the foundation, the Word of God, by God's design. But if you're one of those other bricks up here somewhere, what keeps you securely connected to the foundation? Well, the mortar, the cement ultimately connects you to that foundation if you trace it all the way back down. Your own personal study of God's Word plays a very important role in keeping you firmly footed on the foundation. But you're not just cemented to the foundation. You're cemented to the other bricks. As long as you stay where God put you, the connection of all those other bricks to the foundation stays strong. And as long as all those other bricks stay where God put them, your connection to the foundation stays strong. Now if you move from the metaphor back to the reality, through your connection to other believers, God is keeping them firmly grounded in the Word and firmly anchored to Christ. And through the connection that your fellow believers have with you, God is keeping you firmly grounded in the Word and firmly anchored to Christ. This is all borne out beautifully in Ephesians chapter 4 via a different word picture, that of a body and a head, a body with a head and with lots of other body parts. God gives equipping gifts to a few and through those gifts, He builds up maturity and conformity to Christ in every single believer, every body part. But it's not just through those who have the equipping gifts that that maturity comes. 
It's also through each other, joint to joint, body part to body part, or to use the original metaphor, brick to brick. Ephesians 4, verses 14 through 16 says, as a result, meaning as a result of God's design, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You and I speak truth to each other and God uses every single one of us to grow up His body in maturity. Maturity that is all about conformity to our head, Christ. By the way, from what does this maturity protect us according to the passage? From false teaching. From false doctrine that would otherwise fling us around the way a cork gets flung around by storm-tossed waves. The truth of God's Word that we speak to one another keeps us submitted to the head. It strengthens and matures the body and it protects the body from external attacks. But it's not just the truth that we receive through personal study of God's Word. And it's not just the truth we receive from preachers. It is also the truth that we speak to one another. In fact, that very means of receiving God's Word seems to be the one that is most in focus there in that passage in Ephesians 4. I want to make sure this morning that we see that the strength and maturity and effectiveness for the work of service of God's household is not just about making sure that each of us is individually well-grounded in the Word. That is clearly part of God's design. It's a critical part that needs much attention because it is currently much neglected. But there's another part that's just as important to God's design. And that is how God establishes and matures us in the Word through each other. Brick to brick. I'm going to ask you to think with me for a couple of minutes through what has changed about the way we as believers receive the Word of God, the way we take in the Word of God today compared with the way the saints took in the Word of God in the days of the early church and before. Throughout the roughly 1,500 years during which God's Word was being delivered, revealed to mankind by the Holy Spirit through both the Old Testament and New Testament prophets and apostles, only a handful of men in any given local community of God's people actually had access to written scrolls or parchments manuscripts of some part of God's Word. Only a few. And for a long time, even after every book of the Bible had been delivered to mankind through those prophets and apostles, 
whatever part of the Scriptures a given group of God's people did have in written form was read out loud at every opportunity. In synagogues, on hillsides, in catacombs under the ground, in house churches, and in conversations between two or three or more believers wherever they could manage to come together. Those who had committed various portions of the Word of God to memory were certainly used by God to share those portions with other believers when written manuscripts were not available. Believers would remind one another of the revolutionary transforming truths of God's Word in the midst of the challenges and temptations and persecutions of their daily lives. Speaking the truth to each other in love. And until the advent of movable type printing presses and mass-produced Bibles starting in the mid to late 1400s, any notion at all of the average Christian having a home Bible was inconceivable. Much less a personal Bible. Or multiple electronic translations of the Bible readily accessed uh, with a few taps on a smartphone or a Bible that could read itself to you on your way to work. Which I love, by the way. There's a point to that little rabbit trail through history. Throughout most, by far, most of the generations of God's people who have lived on this earth, the part of the human body through which they have received the Word of God was not the eyes, it was the ears. They had to hear the Bible read or recited from memory because they didn't have direct access to a written or printed copy the way all of us, all of us do today, here. And where, beloved, where did a believer have to go to be exposed to God's Word? If he was one of those saints who, as God commands, actually longed for, craved the pure spiritual milk of God's Word. Where would a Christian have to go to get to that necessary food? He'd have to go where other Christians were. That Christian, that brick in God's household, would have to go find some other bricks who were already cemented to the foundation of God's Word. He'd have to become bound together with those other bricks. This is an absolutely critical element of God's blueprint for His household. The very means by which Scripture was disseminated to God's people and through God's people to one another for generation after generation after generation cemented bricks to bricks, creating a very strong bond of community. And at the same time, it firmly secured individual bricks to the foundation. It made personal, individual knowledge of the Word indispensable. Because whenever you could not get to a place where someone could read from a written copy of the Scriptures, your best resource to be exposed to the Word of God was each other. 
That powerful practice in the early church of coming together to build one another up in the Word isn't merely described in the New Testament. It is commanded in the New Testament. In Colossians 3, at the end of a marvelous passage about putting off the old man and putting on the new man, Paul gives us this command. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Let me read that again. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Got it? Throughout the history of God's household, vigorous, personal, individual knowledge of the incomparable Word of God has been a powerful fortification to that household. The same continuous bead of mortar that binds the first layer of bricks to the foundation to God's Word also binds all the other bricks to that same foundation through the bonds that every brick has with the other bricks. God designed and created His household in such a way that in order for every believer to be well grounded in the Word of God, we had to be cemented to each other. You cannot have one of those bonds without the other, not even now. When I was still very young in the Lord, I was exposed to the astounding story of a man named Jeremiah Denton. In 1965, the Navy A-6 intruder jet that Denton was flying was shot down during a bombing run over North Vietnam. He parachuted out, and he spent nearly the next eight years in Vietnamese POW camps, most of it in the notorious Hualo Prison in Hanoi, disaffectionately known to the prisoners as the Hanoi Hilton. One of our local congressmen, Sam Johnson, was there for a good part of that same time. Denton later wrote a book about his experience in that brutal camp, and it was called When Hell Was in Session. He became famous to many as the prisoner who cleverly blinked out the word torture with his eyes, in Morse code during a televised 1966 interview while his captors stood by obliviously thinking they were making a really good propaganda film. That interview ended up being broadcast all over the world. After his release from that horrible place, Denton eventually became a rear admiral in the U.S. Navy and then a U.S. senator. But the part of his story that I will never, ever forget is how powerfully God used the believing prisoners in that camp to build one another up in the faith against all odds. Many men rotated into and out of that camp during the time Denton was there. And back in the 60s, it was not at all uncommon for young American men to have memorized various verses or even whole passages of Scripture. Some knew a whole lot of Scripture and others knew a little. 
But one of the prisoners' favorite things to do, especially at night in that POW camp, was to tap out Bible verses in Morse code to each other so that they would find encouragement from the Lord of the Word in the midst of that horrific circumstance. They would also sweep out Bible verses in Morse code in broad daylight right under the noses of their captors. Many of those prisoners knew a whole lot more Scripture when they left the Hanoi Hilton than they knew when they, when they arrived. And a good many of them had grown significantly in their faith and relationship with God in the very midst of circumstances that might otherwise have driven them to utter despair. They had exposed one another to the Lord of the Word by sharing with one another by every possible means the Word of the Lord. These guys weren't preachers. They were pilots. Many of them in their 20s when they arrived at that POW camp. That's a compelling example of what happens when the bricks in God's household become firmly cemented to the strong foundation of God's Word through their attachment to each other. That's what Paul is talking about when he commands, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. That's how God designed His household to work. But many in His church today are turning their backs on that design. They're either intentionally or unwittingly setting out to remodel the household of God. Something God will never permit. Never in the history of the world have we enjoyed such ready access to the Word of God as we possess today. Now surely there are still places in the world like North Korea where you have to take your life into your hands to get your hands on even a single copy of the Bible or to give it to somebody else. But here in the Western world, we know nothing of that poverty of access to the living Word of God. The ubiquity, meaning the presence everywhere and in unlimited numbers of hard copy Bibles, along with the unlimited availability of free electronic copies of the Bible, has has entirely eliminated any necessity for an individual believer to come together with other believers in order to get access to the Word of God. Ever since the advent of the first mass-produced Bibles in the 1400s, it has become increasingly easy with each subsequent generation for every brick in God's household to be directly connected to the foundation, the Word of God, without being connected to other bricks. Isn't that supposed to be a good thing? Doesn't God love it when every individual believer is directly beholding Him in His Word? Just think of it. Every Christian reading and meditating regularly on the Word of God. Every Christian being transformed, conformed to Christ daily. 
by the renewing of his mind through direct personal interaction with the living and active Word of God. What could be better than that? The problem is, beloved, that's not what's happening. Here's what is happening. In spite of the fact that we have unprecedented access to the Bible, an increasingly smaller and smaller percentage of professing Christians actually know the Bible well enough to even begin to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. The Word of God does not richly dwell in the hearts of many believers. And many of those in whose hearts it dwells the least care little to do anything about it. A second exceedingly distressing phenomenon is that an increasingly larger number of professing Christians no longer consider the community of believers, the church, to be important to their personal brand of Christianity, as if there were any such thing as a personal brand of Christianity. The bricks in God's household are chipping away at their own connection both to the foundation and to the other bricks. I'm going to take the second of those two failures and address it first because it follows from the first. We're going to come back to the the first one's the big one. There is a widespread, rapidly growing notion among some professing Christians that they can do Christianity without doing church. Some think that listening to an occasional sermon on the radio or as a podcast or watching a YouTube of a well-known preacher will suffice as their church experience. Others seem to think that having friendships with a couple of Christians covers that base adequately. But if you look at a 2010 study by Barner Research, one of the most disturbing trends in the church is that young people are less and less interested in talking to each other about spiritual things, even other Christians. Still others actually attend a church, but they attend more and more sporadically and would never consider committing themselves to actually being a regular, active, vital part of a local community of believers. Beloved, this is a systematic dismembering of the body of Christ. Or to go back to the original picture It's the premeditated deconstruction of the household of God by its own bricks. It's as if some of the bricks were saying, in effect, I can be a much better brick if I can just loosen up this mortar that has me stuck to all these other chipped, faded, bird poop stained bricks so I can go do this my way. Believers who think in those terms and they're multiplying like brick-colored rabbits are despising the bride of Christ. They're playing Jenga with the household that God has built. That second failure, the abandonment of the household of God by its own bricks, follows from and actually depends upon the first failure. 
the first and primary failure is the abandonment of the foundation by the bricks. If you Google the phrase biblical illiteracy, you'll get about 68,000 hits. And a whole bunch of those articles and posts have popped up just within the last couple of years. One recent poll found that over 40% of those who regularly attend church in the U.S. read the Bible only once or twice a month. 20% said they never read the Bible. One out of five. And here is just one of many thousands of effects of that grievous neglect of the foundation. 59% of those who identify themselves as evangelical Christians believe the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being. Star Wars is having a bigger impact on core evangelical doctrine than the Bible is. I could spend the rest of the day giving you many alarming and ridiculous examples like that. One professor at Biola College said a female student came up to him after a lecture about the conversion of Saul in Acts chapter 9. And she said, she said, Prof, when was it that Saul was king? And that prof said, in the Puritan era, there wouldn't have been a single child in the Christian church that would have made that error. Not one. Some of the stories are funny, but they should make us mourn and weep. And there is a growing trend in the modern church that seeks to create out of thin air a spiritual-sounding justification for the decline of individual disciplined study of the Bible. The argument goes something like this. The church these days is too concerned about knowing the Bible and is not concerned enough about doing it. As I've said before, the second part of that statement is absolutely right. But the first part is catastrophically wrong. Knowing the Word without obeying it, without doing it, is useless. It's an insult to God. But the notion that a child of God can be too saturated with the knowledge of God's Word is utter nonsense. And it is very, very dangerous nonsense. The longest single battle in which American soldiers have ever fought It was the Battle of Hurtgen Forest in Europe during World War II. That battle spanned five brutally cold months in 1944 and 1945. Now let's say at the very beginning of that battle, one battalion commander said to his troops, Okay boys, you got to eat when you were back at the staging camp. Now it's time to fight. You can't eat and fight at the same time, so there won't be any more eating until the battle has been won. How long would his troops have been able to fight at all? King Saul made that mistake with his own troops once, and it got real messy. Read 1 Samuel 14. If an army eats but doesn't fight, it's useless in the battle. If an army fights but doesn't eat, it's dead. 
You cannot pit feeding on the Word of God against doing the Word of God as if they were competing commitments. If you do so, you are undermining God's household and you are opposing the builder and the owner of the house. If anyone ever says to you, you need to put down your Bible and start fighting God's battles, please feel free to point out to him that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of the Lord. If you put it down, you're disarmed. How much of the Bible, how much of the Bible do you need to know in order to be well anchored to the cornerstone? To know Jesus Christ, to love Him, to trust Him, to obey Him as fully and as graciously as He calls you to do all of those things. Well, the answer is easy. How much of the Bible is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work? All of it! 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All of it. The Word of God, every bit of it, is the foundation of God's household. The Word of God is the seed from which you came to have eternal life. The Word of God is your necessary food without which you can neither grow nor live. The Word of God is your primary weapon of warfare by which you destroy the speculations of godless men and and by which you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit and it is divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Don't ever let anyone tell you to put it down so you can get to work. God commands you to long for that pure, unadulterated Word the way a newborn baby craves his mother's milk. Guys, how crazy is it that God has to command us to eat? Is that a mean-spirited, burdensome command? Is that an unreasonable command? No, what's unreasonable is that God should have to command it in the first place. It is the gracious command of a perfect Father who knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but stupid dust. And He knows far better than we how blessed and how useful we become when we are spiritually well-fed instead of spiritually starved. And it is from that same gracious and loving heart that God has for His children, for you, as His redeemed bricks that God commands you to gather together with the other bricks. Your co-heirs with Christ, your trench partners in God's army so that He may use each one of you to increase the others longing for and dependence upon the pure life-sustaining Word that anchors us to Jesus Himself. If our technology is contributing to our neglect of that wonderful responsibility to regularly gather together with our fellow saints 
so that we may encourage one another in the Word, then we should all be praying for a great big electromagnetic pulse that turns all of these into paperweights. But that's not the problem, is it? The problem isn't in our smartphones. The problem is in our hearts. Our problem is foolish accounting. How much convincing does it take you to invest in something if you're already 100% certain that it will give you an insanely great return on investment? If you knew without a doubt that $20 invested today would yield $2,000 in a week, how much arm twisting would it take for you to fork out the 20 The reason that we're unconvinced that a diligent effort to feed on God's Word regularly, both individually and together, is worth the effort is because we have the value proposition wrong. We're looking for one kind of return on that investment, but it's not the return that God intends and it's not the one that He guarantees. This is where our third violation of God's design for His building comes in. The first is our neglect of our connection with the foundation, the Word of God. The second is our neglect of our connection with the other bricks, the people of God. And the third is our neglect of the inviolable connection between the foundation and the cornerstone. In God's blueprints, the foundation of His household, which is the Word of God, is firmly, inexorably anchored to the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. The entire point of the foundation is to anchor God's people to that cornerstone. When we change up that design by chiseling away at the bond between the foundation and the cornerstone, we mess up the whole value proposition. We begin to treat the Bible like a lucky rabbit's foot instead of the firm foundation that anchors us to Christ. And then, when our own crummy redesign doesn't work out so well, we simply lose interest in His Word and in each other. We think, okay, if I read my Bible every morning for 30 minutes before I go to work, maybe my life will finally start to work right. I'll quit being so out of control of my moods. Who knows, my wife might even decide she likes me. And hey, if I I read it for a whole hour every morning, my marriage will be great. My kids will start to actually pay attention to me. And this crippling anxiety and depression that's, that's tearing me up will be replaced by serenity. Won't that be great? So we finally start reading our Bibles to try out that value proposition. and Maybe we last a couple of weeks. Maybe if we're really tenacious, we last a couple of months. But eventually we figure out it's not panning out. So we go back to using that precious time for something more likely to give us a good return on investment. Or maybe some of us study the Bible so we can finally hold our own in arguments with people who don't believe exactly what we believe on various points. We all hate losing arguments, right? And the ones we hate losing the most 
or arguments with other Christians. But we quickly find out that the glories of being right don't provide adequate justification for all the time it takes to know the Bible really well. Maybe some of us men study the Bible so we won't look like idiots when we come up front and share during the worship at CBC. What if I studied the Bible really hard to ensure that I wouldn't disappoint anyone when I get up here on Sundays? I don't want to be the one who causes you guys to go look for another church. So I better invest the time that it takes to ensure that I preach a four-star sermon every week. Some of you might be laughing at that. I can tell you for sure that value proposition will not sustain anyone in a preaching role for any length of time. The problem with all of those value propositions is that they have nothing to do with God's purpose for giving us this foundation. Nothing. God didn't send His faithful prophets and apostles to their deaths to put His Word in our hands so that we would have problem-free marriages or compliant kids or so that we could win theological arguments, or so we could dazzle other Christians anytime we step up to a microphone. Now, here's God's value proposition. This is God's investment plan. And it goes right back to His blueprints for His house. God gave us His Word so we would know His Son. and find our life in Him alone. The Word of God, the foundation of God's household, was graciously given to us, beloved, to anchor us to the cornerstone. So firmly that we will have no reason to go anywhere else. Because when we are genuinely connected to Him, we find in Him the fulfillment of every worthy affection. When we come to the Word of the Lord to meet the Lord of the Word, not only are we not disappointed, we are in awe. We find the return on that investment to be off the charts (laughs) because of the incomparable worthiness of Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, why are you here this morning sitting in that seat for this hour? If it's not to behold your Savior and Master through His Word, there are better things you could be doing with your time. And if it is to behold Him, then know this. In the final analysis, my only legitimate reason for standing up here is to draw your attention to the Lord of the Word. I'll never do that perfectly. I wish I could. And those of you who share the preaching and teaching task with me will never do it perfectly. Those of you who come up to lead us in the worship won't do that part perfectly either. But that's okay because that's not God's value proposition. The one we come together to adore and worship, the one we come together to boast about and to show off to each other (laughs) every Sunday when we gather, every time two or more of us come together outside of Sundays 
that one is perfectly worthy of all the energy and effort and time and money that we set aside to behold Him. Whatever we set aside on any given day to sit at His feet, to listen to Him, to come together with our fellow saints to build one another up in the personal transforming knowledge of the Lord of the Word, all of it comes back to us a thousandfold. Because the value of anything that we set aside to be firmly anchored to our, to our cornerstone is as nothing compared to the surpassing value of knowing our beautiful Savior. Long for His Word because you long for Him. If that's not a habit of life for you, put all you have into cultivating that habit starting today. You have more tools at your disposal to help you build that habit than any generation in the history of the world has had. It's not some option that God has set before you to consider. It is a command that God has given to every sinner He has redeemed to be His child forever. So is His command to you to faithfully teach and encourage and admonish your brothers and sisters in Christ out of the wealth of His incomparable Word that has come to richly dwell within your heart. And if it doesn't yet richly dwell within your heart, throw your blueprints away and embrace His. Never forget that everything about God's design for His household, everything about it, including the gift of His Word, is about knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Loving Father, I pray for this body as I pray for myself that we would not take this lightly. Father, what a magnificent inheritance you have given to us. What a marvelous living hope you have given to us. What a wonderful foundation you have given to us. What lovely saints, brothers and sisters in Christ you have given to us. But above all, Lord, what a beautiful cornerstone. What a marvelous head. What a glorious Savior. May all that we do every day be about Him. We ask this in Jesus' precious name.